And it is my opportunity to introduce our speaker this morning, a man who is here to inspire, lead us forward as we charge into the new year. Please welcome Reverend Dr. Patrick Cameron. Good morning.
you to know with me. One life, Spirit's life. And each time we call it, it calls us. So as Rumi so beautifully wrote, come, come again, come. In the remembrance of that, I open my heart, my mind, and my being to the experience of the infinite. And I know that everything necessary and right and perfect for me to experience in this moment and each moment hereafter, I impress upon its infinite law that it has made clear and powerful and available in my life, in my consciousness. I direct my thinking in a powerful, wonderful way. For this, I give thanks. And together we say, and so it is. Thank you, guys. Here it is. So before I, uh, good morning. Before I, I uh, uh, begin, someone gave me a note uh, of something really important that I have to deal with. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it over here right now because I don't want to have to think about it. So I'm going to put it right there, and I'm not going to think about it at all. I'm not going to give it any thought whatsoever. It's going to be right there, and I'm not going to think about it at all. <clears throat> okay, good. Glad you got it. So we've been using Raymond Charles Barker's book, The Power of Decision, and... and um, Raymond Charles Barker was a contemporary of Ernest Holmes, and it's a wonderful book. And people that have read it and, and looked at it, we've got one copy left in the bookstore. So I know it's been, it's been a popular item. And along with that, this week, I wanted to share with you some insights from a wonderful book by Jim Collins, who wrote uh, Good to Great a number of years ago. And Good to Great is a great, wonderful book about having a big, uh, a beeha, he calls it, a big, hairy idea in your life. And, uh, and, and the, the bigger idea propels us, it forces us to grow and it forces us to stretch. And so this is his follow-up book called Great by Choice. And what he's done is he's, he's done a study of people that have been very successful. And it ties in beautifully with what Barker's talking about because one of the things that they've done in, the, in Great by Choice is they made a decision to behave in a certain way and to respond to life in a certain way. And, it, and, and it's been measured. And he calls these, this group of people the 10 Xers. And 10 Xers are these, this, this, they have different behaviors. They have different ways of looking at their lives. They, they have three qualities. One is called fanatic discipline. The other one is productive paranoia. And the third is empirical creativity. And with the time I have available today, I'm, I'm not going to be able to touch on all of them. But it, it's a wonderful book if you want to deepen your your study in it. One of the things that he talks about with 10Xers that I think is so compelling is he says 10Xers understand that they face continuous uncertainty and that they cannot control and cannot accurately predict significant aspects of the world around them. So that's the world we live in. We don't control all of it. We do, but we do, we do influence our uh, response to it. And many, a t- and many times we, we do um, uh, have a, a part to play in it. On the other hand, 10Xers reject the idea that forces outside their control or chance events will determine their results. 
they accept full responsibility for their own fate. So it sounds like our teaching, accept full responsibility for our own fate. One of the, the great uh, points, he talks about this uh, fanatic discipline. He talks about discipline, in essence, is consistency of action. Consistency with values, consistency with long-term goals, consistency with performance standards, consistency of methods, consistency over time. Discipline is not the same as regimentation. Discipline is not the same as measurement. Discipline is not the same as hierarchical obedience or adherence to bureaucratic rules. True discipline requires the independence of mind to reject pressures to conform in ways incompatible with values, performance standards, and long-term aspirations. For a 10Xer, the only legitimate form of discipline is self-discipline. Having the inner will to do whatever it takes to create a great outcome, no matter how difficult. So it really ties in beautifully with what I, I believe we teach, what we talk about every week, and the power of decision, to make a decision to, to be great in our own lives. I want to share a story with you that I think is a wonderful example. It's, um, and it's in chapter 7. It's called Return on Luck. So I'm going to do a little bit of reading, but I will do my best to make it uh, engaging. In May of 1999, Malcolm Daly and Jim Dunoni stood 3,000 feet up on an uphill face of Thunder Mountain in Alaska, only a few hundred feet below the summit. Daly offered to let Dunoni go first on the rope to experience the joy of reaching the summit first. But Dunoni said, no, you keep it. You are the one who deserves the gift. Less than an hour later, Daly would be dangling at the end of a rope, legs shattered, just beginning an epic fight for his life, a life that would forever be transformed by losing one of his feet. Daly climbed toward the summit, swinging his ice axe like a giant claw, kicking knife-like spikes attached to his boots called crampons into the ice. Moving methodically up the near-vertical wall, he dragged the safety rope knotted to his waist harness along behind him. While Danoni remained anchored to the wall, feeding the rope through a friction device that would snap tight if the rope suddenly jerked like a car seatbelt that would cease tight in a crash. The plan daily would climb to the summit ridge, placing protection points along the way, mainly ice screws twisted into frozen sheets of ice, anchoring himself to the top of the mountain, and then hold the safety rope while Danoni climbed up behind him to meet him. With only about 15 feet of steep climbing to go, Daly reached a section of rock where he could place no protection. No problem, though. The final few feet of climbing looked easy. Daly placed his left hand on a big jut of rock, groped about with his right hand looking for another hold, thinking to himself, gosh, this next move is it, and there is no move, more moves on the route. We are essentially up. And something gave way. He fell. 10 feet, 20 feet, ice screws ripped out, 40 feet, 100 feet, still falling. The rope whipped. The gear clanged as Daly bounced and flew. He smashed into his partner, puncturing Denoni's right thigh with the pointed teeth of his crampons. Daly hurled, hurled past, still falling, 60 more feet. Something sharp sliced the rope. 10 of 12 cord strands of rope severed right through. If the remaining two were to break, Daly cratered into the mountainside. The two remaining strands of cord, less than two millimeters thick, stretched but didn't break. Daly stopped, a crumpled lump. Malcolm, Malcolm, are you okay? Are you alive? Yelled Danoni, thinking that Daly must be dead. And Daly didn't respond. Danoni kept yelling, no response. Then finally, Daly regained consciousness. Blood dripping from his scalp, he looked at his lower legs and feet, shattered with compound fractures, feet flopping around, useless. Daly felt the ends of busted bones rubbing together. 
Danone descended to Daly, and they tried to engineer a self-rescue, but soon realized that any movement could worsen the compound fractures, and Daly might bleed to death. Daly told Danone, you have to go get a rescue. After acknowledging Daly, <clears throat> after anchoring Daly to the wall, Danone took off on a 3,000-foot solo descent. Within minutes after Danone reached base camp at the bottom of the mountain, he heard something quite unexpected. His friend Paul Roderick of the Tal Talkeetna Air Taxi, an expedition support service, just happened to be flying by that particular valley at the exact moment. Danone waved him down, and Roderick flew Danone directly to the ranger station to plan a rescue. The rescue to, began immediately, many hours, <clears throat> and many hours sooner than Danone had needed would have needed if he'd had to hike out to the station. Those hours proved pivotal. By the time the rescue was organized, impending storms threatened to curtail the attempt. Racing the weather, a helicopter flew up to Daly's perch, and a rescue pilot hanging from a cable below the chopper swung into the mountainside and plucked Daly off the mountain. Four hours later, a huge storm enveloped the mountain and raged for 12 days. So you ask yourself, he continues, was it luck or skill? And what part did luck play in this story? So some of the details are, are, are quite interesting around this idea of luck. There was the bad luck of Daly's seemingly solid stance imperceptibly giving away, sending him hurling into the abyss. And, there's, and there's, there, that was the bad luck. There's a lot of good luck. The slice rope wasn't cut all the way through. Daly didn't die in the fall. He didn't kill Denoni on the way down. Denoni reached base camp just as the airplane happened to fly by, and everything take, had taken just... If it had taken just five hours longer, Daly would not have survived. But now, <clears throat> let's add another piece to the story. Malcolm Daly had prepared well in advance. He drew on tremendous, tremendous physical reserves and, wil and wilderness experience, layers of fitness and strength built by thousands of hours of rigorous training, biking, climbing, running, skiing, and mountaineering. He'd also prepared mentally reading survival literature just in case he ever ended up in a desperate battle for his life. In fact, just days before the climb, he'd been reading about Ernest Shackleton's and his mission to rescue himself and his men from the Elephant Island in Antarctica in 1916. Daly learned from his preparation that wallowing in your misfortune increases risk. I loved my feet, he said, but there was nothing I could do that would affect the outcome of my feet other than worry about them too much and at the level of stress that, and then perhaps I could hurt my chances of survival. So I put that thought on a shelf. Remember the, the problem I have that's over on the shelf right now? Daly made a plan to live, what he later described as a decision to live. He had to stay warm, not go into hypothermia. So, let, so he set forth a regiment. He would do 100 windmills on one arm, swinging it around in full 360-degree circles, and then 100 on the other arm, and then 100 stomach crunches, and then repeat without stopping, keeping his mind focused counting precisely not approximately 100 but not not approximately 100 but exactly 100 he tired but kept a regiment dropping to sets of 50 and then eventually 20 but always with the regiment that daily had the stamina and tenacity to keep this up for 44 hours is certainly not luck he had the right partner with jim denoni as daily had always chosen his partners with great care knowing that the ultimate hedge against danger and uncertainty is whom you have on the mountain with you Denoni had logged thousands of days in the mountains from Patagonia to the Himalayas, capturing some of the most coveted first ascents in climbing history, and he was one of only a handful of people in the world with the skill to descend 3,000 feet solo 
without a single misstep despite having a punctured thigh. When the rescue began, Daly prepared for the, for the helicopter by cutting open the pack into which he stuffed his broken feet so they, they'd pull out with ease, slicing away his bloody frozen leg coverings and chipping away at any residual ice that might have frozen something to the wall. He knew how to take these steps because he'd studied helicopter rescues and he was ready. Which brings us to perhaps the most significant element in daily survival. He developed relationships with people who loved him and who would risk their lives for him. The rescue leader who swung in from the helicopter, Billy Schott, was a longtime friend. <clears throat> when Schott swung onto the, new, the snow slope, his radio communication went awire, which would have normally meant an automatic abort, but Schott knew he had to get his friend. His friend off the mountain before the storm, so he made an on-the-spot switch to hand signals. Clawing at the snow with ice tools, he gouged and scampered up to Daly, snapped him in onto the cable, then signaled the helicopter to whoosh them away from the mountain. Shot held Daly in a huge bear hug as they dangled from a cable thousands of feet in the air. Shot sported a huge smile. You know who I am? Daly shook his head, unable to see his rescuer's face, and then Shot lifted his faceplate. It's Billy Shot. Daly's friend had come to save his life and deliver him to safety. Luck clearly played a role in Daly's survival, but luck didn't save Daly in the end. People did. So I, I think it's a wonderful story that this man made a decision to live. And, and Raymond Charles, um, and, and, and how when we make a decision, we make a decision in our lives, the, the infinite around us, starts to shift and change in ways that, that perhaps we can't even imagine. You know, when Denoni got down to the base camp, the plane happened to be going overhead. Daly had gone through all this training. He'd studied. He'd prepared himself to succeed. In, in Raymond Charles Barker's book, he talks about the power of decisions. Because that's what it's called, the power of decisions. In, in the chapters that, that remain in the book that I haven't covered, I'm going to touch on them briefly today with you. The, one is called the decision to be happy. Happiness is not a constant, but satisfaction can be. Satisfaction is a deep underlying sense of fulfillment, a sense of doing a good job with life. It is a good subconscious base which abides in certainty through the many vicissitudes at the conscious mind level of experience. It is a basic wholesomeness which permits a flow of creativity to be an action in both mind and emotion. The satisfaction, a deep underlying sense of fulfillment, a sense of doing a, a good job with life. And I, I think this speaks volumes to uh, what my experience has been with, with our spiritual path that we finally reach that point. One of the things is that with this 10 Xers that they talk about is they, they stay true to their values, the things that are precious to them. One of the things that we've been doing here in the, in the, uh, in the evolution of, the, um, of, of our community is the co-creation process. And, and it's different than anything we've ever done before because there's, we all, what I know is that when you have conflict, when we have conflict in our own being or we have conflict in our, in our group, it prevents us from being together in love. And so what I know is that I don't have any of the answers. As Dr. Ken Gordon said in that video I showed you a few weeks ago, 
our new spiritual leader. But something within me does, something within all of us does. And as we, we call that forth and we live from that and make that decision to, to go there and to deepen in our practice and to clear away any conflict and any confusion so that we can be together in love. Somebody said to me this week, a number of uh, years ago, um, see, I would be really good as the cruise director here. I would really be good as the cruise director. I could make sure everybody was happy all the time. And then we'd have somebody else in, in, in my job to say, are we all living to the values that are important? And someone, uh, one of my great heroes came up to me in the past few days and said to me, um, we, ha- we had a, a, an adventure together. And this person said to me, because I, I finally said, we're doing this. And the way you're showing up is not aligning with this. So you can't keep showing up this way. And so we took a time out for a while. And it wasn't because I wanted to do that, because the cruise director in me never wants to send anybody to time out. But I knew that it was really, really important to be able to love this person. And by allowing what was happening to continue, it was not a form of love, it was enabling. And so they came to me and they said the other day, it was such a wonderful thing, it just brought me to tears and, and, and such joy because you watch people on their journey and, and um, this person just continued to stay engaged and continues to stay engaged and continues to do his work. But he said, you know, what I came to realize is that the person that I thought I was at that time, when I was in that experience, is not the person I am. And, um, and, I, and, I, and I get that now. But if we are to love one another and when we go off the tracks, because we're not, not because my opinion doesn't agree with your opinion, but because we value this, we've made the decision to live, we've made the decision to thrive, we've made a decision to be happy. And if we're not honoring those values and we're not calling ourselves and myself back to that, then we're not being in love. We're being an enabling. We're keeping, we're, we're, we're uh, as Dr. Holmes said, uh, realization without application is hallucination. One of the things I love about this story is that he, when he went up the mountain, he went with people that he knew he could trust, the people that had done the work. He went with one of the world-class climbers because he wanted to succeed. And he wanted to bring the best people he possibly could into his life. And for me, I just, I resonate with that. So it's one of the reasons that I put my name forward to be on the new uh, leadership council because I wanted to be in that conversation and not because I thought I had to tell them anything or fix anything, but the, the collective in it is so powerful. And I'm inspired by those people because they're not talking about their, their opinions that, oh, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's life. We get caught in opinions. But we're t- we're, we, we sit down and we talk about values and we do a lot of spiritual practice together. And it's, it's a powerful, wonderful thing. Barker says this, you alone are cause to your material experience. You alone are, and this is what a 10Xer does, takes responsibility. You alone are cause to it. This is perhaps a very unpleasant truth, but it has to be known and accepted if a correct way to be found to be happy. Already in your mind are the right ideas seeking your right thinking to become cause to your inner and outer happiness. You do not need to implore the deity. See, we don't even need God to work these principles in our lives. We just simply have to make the decision, and then God responds to it. God's always responding. Always, we don't have to implore it. It's what he's saying. It's always available. We're always in conversation. You do not need to know yourself as a great spiritual potential of happiness. 
God works in you as you has been completely accomplished. It awaits your recognition and your practice of its ideas. Here is a spiritual treatment to make you aware. And he continues with the spiritual mind treatment. Next, any decision to be happy was that chapter. Next one is decision to live richly. He continues. He goes right through. You want to know how to live richly? It's right there. He describes it. And then it's decision to be healthy, decision to be creative. Decision to live richly. You can live a much fuller life right where you are in your present circumstances. It does not require more money, a better job, a nicer home, or a different marriage partner. It requires a change in consciousness. And this you can do for you are a thinker. You are the controller of your consciousness. The moment you decide to live a richer life, your consciousness will devise the ways and means of your having it. Consciousness contains total intelligence because consciousness is the action of the infinite mind thinking. Your consciousness is the individualization of the total consciousness of being. You know, Barker tells a great story in this book. He said a cousin came, one of his relatives came and wanted to check out his church. And so his, his, his cousin shows up and he said the first week he came and, he'd, and he had his own church and he was part of a large congregation in another denomination and he came the first week to, just to count people, wanted to see how successful his cousin was. Oh, okay, pretty good group, pretty good size. And, and Barker's church was in New York City. <clears throat> anyway, the next week he came back and he counted people, but he listened a little bit. He thought, hmm, that's pretty interesting. He came back a third week, as I guess he was there for three Sundays, and he, and he listened just with, in rapture of what the idea is. He'd never heard this stuff before. And so he was getting ready to go home a couple days later after service. He says, he says, he says yeah, this is quite interesting what you're doing. And he said, thank God I'm leaving because I would start to believe you. We had a memorial here yesterday for Danny Wojciech, and, and there were a lot of people here, and, and there were a lot of Catholics here. And, and, and they stayed for a long time, forever. Uh, anyway, and, and, and it was, that's not a bad thing, but it was, it, it was so nice we were able to do that with Danny and his family. But they were asking questions, and, I, and I, I thought of Barker's story, because as I started to talk about how we approach God, and of course how we approach the idea of Jesus... You could just see the wheels turning. And what Barker said about his cousin was that my cousin was at a point in his life where he said, you know, I'm, I'm just too old to even consider a new way of thinking about God. But thank you so much, and I wish you well. <laughs> it's a great story. Decide to be healthy. He talks about this. You know, I was watching a program the other day on depression. And there's a very small pe- percentage of people that are on um, medication for depression that actually respond. They have found that the placebo with depression is almost as effective as the medications. And the majority of people, because there's a lot of people taking medication for depression. I went to, here's what I did yesterday. I told the gang for the memorial service, I know it's getting late, but we got time. We got to stay for the AGM anyway. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) See, Reverend Catherine over there. I had to go, I had, I said, well, I'll get the, co- we, we were trying to find a coffee maker, because our coffee makers are kind of in a, you know, in a, we're in transition with coffee around here. And, uh, and so I, I said, well, I'll just go to Tim Hortons in the morning, and I'll buy the coffee for Danny's morning, no worries. And I go down there, you know how many people were packed up waiting to buy Tim Horton coffee? I was like, I thought, this is like crack to these people, this is amazing. <laughs> I didn't want to get in the, 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 the line of cars snake through Walmart's parking lot. I'm like, this is coffee. And then, and then I tried to go in. I said, well, I'll just go in. I couldn't get in the door. 
there were people standing and they're like this. I don't know where the line went. They were just going. I said, I'm going to, I'm going somewhere and buying a coffee pot, which I did. And I came back and brewed coffee for three hours. And I was happy to do it. Because I decided to be happy while I did it. But I just thought, man, how could I, how could I put together programs every Sunday and people would just line up like that? We'd just all be lined up here waiting to hear a talk. It's my goal. I've made a decision to do that. Pardon me? Serve Tim's. There we go. Thank you, Barbie Lee. <laughs> Good plan. But what if you don't drink coffee? He says, in authorizing your health, he says, I have learned from the years of experience that I cannot help anyone unless they make up their mind to be healed and believes health, is to, health to be normal and the physical problems to be unnecessary. A person seeking health has to decide to be well before any spiritual therapy can start producing results for them. There are many people who cannot be helped or healed through mental means because they will not take the responsibility of making their decision for health. But the great thing is once we decide, everything starts shifting and changing. That's been my experience. I love the story of this guy. You know, they could have left him on the mountainside. And if they waited a little bit longer, he, 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 they never would have got him down. But he was in such high relationship. He surrounded himself with people that supported his dream and his vision and, and, and wanted his success. And they loved one another. You know, it's one thing to say, I'm going to go save somebody or I'm going to go try and rescue somebody. Another to say, my friend's on that mountain. I've got to get him off. So it, this is not easy, what we do. It's not an easy practice, but it's, it is such a powerful practice. It's such a powerful practice. And we don't know all the details. We don't know. I don't know. And I, and I don't think any of us do. But I know, like I, I have a, the problem over there that I wasn't going to think about, and I got busy telling you a story. There's actually no problem over there. There's nothing in this. I, someone told me they were angry now because I felt like I lied to them in the first service. <laughs> but how many times do we have a problem and we put it down or we, and when we keep looking at it and looking and say, I'm not going to think about it, I'm not going to think about it, I'm not going to think about it. And in saying that, what we're doing is thinking about it. And then we're empowering the problem. And so what, it, what, what our teaching says is I'm going to make a decision that I'm in co-creation with the infinite and here's an overwhelming problem that I don't know the answers for. And I'm going, to, I'm going to keep it here. And every time I do look at it, every time I do forget, because our nature is to go back to it, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do an affirmation. I'm going to do an affirmative prayer. I'm going to, I'm going to take a vow that what, what is performing here is an opportunity, that I'm not in this alone, that this infinite divine intelligence is in co-creation with me, and I open my heart and my mind to it, and I silence my, myself in this moment with my breathing. And as I do that, what I like to do, and I've shared with many times, I like to just touch a part of my hand or my, rub my fingers together. Because what I do with that is when I'm breathing and I'm, I'm feeling my own being, my own physical form, it takes me out of, I can't think of anything else. But it puts me in that present moment awareness. And then what I know in this awareness is that this infinite intelligence within me and around me and through me and as me is guiding and directing every good idea that allows me to move forward with this opportunity that has brought itself into my experience. So I know the problem. I am grateful. I'm not grateful to God because... The gratitude to God, God doesn't need my gratitude. What the gratitude does is shifts me into a spaciousness of opportunity of welcome. 
that all is well, all is right, despite what is going on, I know I am grounded in the truth of my being, and I'm grateful to know this, and I'm also grateful to know that the solution to that problem that sits on my table is already solved in the mind of the one, and I am the portal, I am the opportunity, I'm the place that that idea, that next good idea shows up. And if I forget, if I pick it back up and begin to worry again, I direct this infinite intelligence within me to guide me and remind me and direct me back to this space, to this place of spaciousness. I have made this decision. I know it is done. I know it is complete here and now. I know that I don't know all the details. I don't know how, but I know the what. The highest and best is resolved for this situation. Whatever it may be in our lives, I have made this decision. I have decided to live I've decided to live prosperously. I've decided to live healthily. I've decided to live creatively, abundantly. I surround myself with the people in my life that support these ideas. I bless the ones that don't. The ones that don't, I love them, but I love them from afar. Because I hang out with the people that treasure and love me as I love them back. That high level of relationship and possibility. So this... This is a way to use this teaching when we have things in our lives that are pulling us away, when we're hanging on the side of the mountain. And so that's why we have spiritual practice, so we can do the windmills with our arms as we're hanging on the side of the mountain, waiting for the helicopter to show up and the people that love us. And sometimes that's what it takes. But if we don't stay the course, we quit there's no opportunity for that blessing to come into our lives. And, and I want that ble- the blessings for you as much as I want it for me and my children and the people that I love. A world that works for everyone. So this is powerful stuff. This is life-transforming stuff. And so let's all, myself included, let's just go out each day this week and do a little bit better, do a little bit more. And let life bless us. Let those blessings show up in our lives. It's not about manipulation. It's not about changing. It's about preparation. As this this climber did, he prepared himself physically and mentally and intellectually. We must do that work. But then it's about allowing. It's about allowing. See, part of the art of ours is the, the gratitude and the releasing. The releasing is saying, I know it's already done. And so it is. Thank you.